Welcome to the podcast of The Table of Minneapolis Church. We are a community that is committed to practicing the ways of Jesus by creating space for all to belong and be loved. Our hope is that in this podcast, in the message that you will hear, that you'll be reminded again of the eternal truth that no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, the places that you've gone or the places that you've stayed, that there will always be a seat here for you at the table. For you're a child of God, and beloved, you belong. Enjoy this week's message. We are in the midst of a series right now, really on the starting end of it, where we're talking about the times of the kingdoms in Israel. And I had a text specifically that I actually was prepared to preach on tonight, believe it or not. I had this thing fully researched, vetted. I got approval from the spouse. We were good to go on Thursday. Lauren, right? Two thumbs up. It was a great sermon. It would have been something special. But then we woke up this morning. And instead of preaching on David and Goliath, something that I was actually very excited to preach about, we wake up this morning to hear that in the past 24 hours, our country has gone through the 249th and the 250th mass shooting, mass murder This year alone, we're in month eight of 12, the early side of things. And so at my cabin, before we got into our car, it became, listen, I don't really know what I'm doing for a job. Let me just, this is going to be a fully honest, transparent deal because we just don't have much else to work with right now. But in my best attempts, what I try to do, what Debbie tries to do, what we try to do is gauge like what... This isn't like a performance. We're not here to do pep talks. We're not here to pump each other's tires. Like, we need to tell the truth. And we need to be able to stop and pause and recognize, is the Spirit speaking in the midst of all the chaos of our lives? Because there are big things happening to us as a country, and there are big things happening to us as individuals. On both sides of things, is there Spirit speaking into that, leading us to this new direction, to these new things, to say things, to be in places, to put our bodies on the line, to all of the above. When I woke up this morning, it became very clear to me that instead of talking about this gigantic problem from 3,000 years ago, we really ought to talk about the giant of a problem that we are dealing with today. And so I want us to at least try to do so today. In the two-hour car ride that I had on the way home, I tried to assemble a few thoughts. I'm going to be going through a note. This might be awkward, but we're going to deal with it. I was dealing with crying children, farting children, sour gum worms being thrown at me, and all of the above. And so as we go into this, try to stay with me. If this is not coherent, I actually mean this. Raise your hand and be like, that's not true. Could you start over? You hear me, T? Got it. Okay. One of the things that struck me in the David and Goliath narrative, and the, um, and I don't know why, but on Thursday afternoon when I was really digging into it, I was shocked by the amount of material that theologians and scholars alike have, have discovered about Goliath's height. Because there are differing versions of how tall this man actually was. The Hebrew scriptures say he was nine feet tall. The Septuagint says that he was about six and a half feet at a time when most people were a little bit more than five feet. And so that would have been in the presence of a giant. But there's a lot of like back and forth around how tall was he? How do we understand what a cubit was? What about a span? This obsession, depth of information about how tall this man is. And when you actually pause to consider all of the brain and intellectual energy that is being poured into something like that, 
Not into climate change, not into data hacking, but we're talking about that. It gets a little absurd, but it does call to mind that we ought to be mindful of the mathematics of what we are talking about, the, the scope of the issue at hand. And so I'm going to read from you some of these notes that I have dug up today, and, and I encourage you to go and do so for yourself. But when we try to understand how tall is the Goliath that is calling us into the field right now, let's name some things that are pieces of our reality. Let's talk about gun violence in America and the presence of guns in our country. Here's some stats I want you to think about as we go through this. According to stats, now these ones most recently came out in 2010, but they told us that 41% of houses in America have guns in them. There are 65,000 licensed gun dealers in America, which to put in context is about five times more um, than we have of McDonald's restaurants in America. 65,000 licensed gun dealers, and that has nothing to say to the unlicensed gun dealers, which some estimates say are astronomical. We don't really want to know. When the New York Times ran an investigative report trying to gauge how many guns are actually available online, how many are, are being pro provided by these unlicensed dealers, what they found was the staggering number of that if you were to go online when you go home tonight, there are approximately 170,000 guns available for you online, just a few clicks away. Things like this explain why America has 4.4% of the world population, but owns almost over 50% of civilian-owned guns in the world. We make up 4%, we, almost, we own more than 50% of the civilian-owned guns. Since Sandy Hook, that doesn't feel that long ago, since Sandy Hook, there have been 1,600 mass shootings in our country. Predominantly, most of those mass shootings were done by white men who are 61% of the gun owners in America, despite only making up 32% of the country. An encouraging note on, on these stats right here, when you think about gun ownership, is that when you look at the trends in today, by and large, ownership of guns is going down. We have less and less people who are going out to own guns. On the flip side of that truth, though, is the reality that the people who own guns are owning more and more guns. And so one stat came out and said that 65% of the guns that are in America today are presently owned by 20% of gun owners. So if you go further with this, this idea of Goliath, in America today, on average, we have 36,383 gun deaths every year and 100,120 average gun-related injuries every year. And that's by intent alone. That's where those numbers are coming from. They're purposefully trying to do damage and cause harm. We have uh, about 500,000 crimes involving guns every year. So a little context on that. In America, we have a gun crime happening once a minute. So for every minute that I've been speaking thus far, we've had a gun crime happen in our country. When you pull back on the content, you get a little more context on that, and you want to understand how legislation plays into this and does it have an effect on these things. When we look at this from a global perspective, you could look at a place like Japan, which has stricter gun laws than us, and they have 0.07 gun deaths per 100,000 people. On the flip side, if you were to look at a place like Switzerland, which has looser gun laws than us, 
they have on average 3.84 gun deaths per 100,000 people. Now you consider that spectrum that regardless of the legislation in the land, whether it's tight or whether it's loose, it fluctuates between those two numbers of 0.07 and 3.84 gun deaths per 100,000 people. Here in America, it's 10. So you just let that sink in for a moment and the reality of what we are dealing with when we talk about the giant standing in the Valley of Elah, calling on our names. How many guns do we have in America? We don't really know, which is concerning on a lot of levels. Rough estimates have it that um, it's somewhere between 270 million and 310 million guns. Um, but again, we don't really know. That comes out, though, if you play the low side and the high side, it comes out to either 88 guns per 100 people all the way up to 112 guns per 100 people. I guess I'm just saying this when we think about the past 24 hours and we think about the 30 people who have killed, it is irresponsible and immoral to look at that and say, this is unbelievable. Because the reality is, is that this is us. This is what we have cultivated. This, this didn't just happen. This is what we have produced aspirationally. Now, it's one thing to read statistics. It's easy to go through hundreds more like this. But let's not get lost in these universal abstract numbers. It's important to be still and recognize that there are particulars involved. You all who were part of this community years ago when the Las Vegas shooting happened, we sat in this room and we established and we committed to one another that as a practice, when there were mass shootings, we wouldn't just rush into advocacy, we wouldn't just rush into speaking truth to power, we would pause and sit down and read the names of the people who were killed. Hear the stories. Remember the humanity that was harmed inside of this. This is not just another political ploy, another thing that we can use for our own gains and advantages or reason why we can get hyped up and push back. These are people that lost their lives. Kids, moms, dads, people. So my ask on all of us is that we would continue to do that. We're not gonna do that tonight, but individually, that you would make space in your day before you go to bed tonight to read through in the past 24 hours alone the 30 lives that were killed. Then if you go back to the week from today, there are other lives that were killed. Lives like six-year-old Stefan Romero, who showed up at a festival in Northern California. It gets real when you move from words to flesh, from abstracts to particulars. I was looking online the other day for school supplies for my kids. Actually, I think it was part of Rachel talking about Stonebridge and, and this desire to collect school supplies for these kids down the road. And in doing so, I came across this photo. And then when I did that, I thought about my own kid last year, picking him up from school. And how casually he told me about what it was like to hide in the bathroom as they went through the school shooting drills, as if that was a normal thing to do. I never had to do that. Never had to do that. And yet this is where we are right now. It's important that we think about these sobering realities. The church isn't just this, this pep talk, but, but that together we're actually telling the truth. 
I mean, I keep thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. who said that the church at its very best, it is not a thermometer. It's not just, oh, here's how things are going. This is the current conditions of the land. The church at its very best is a thermostat. It sets the tone. If the air is inhospitable to life, the church should be on the forefront saying we need to go up a few degrees or down a few more because people are dying in our midst and that's not okay. So what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? I was driving back from the cabin today. And as I was thinking about things like change and thinking about how do we collectively and individually actually make a difference, make a dent in this darkness, how do we live into the worship songs that we sing about? I came across this old country church that has a sign outside the building that says, Jesus saves, you, but you get life change which I don't even understand the clever meaning of it. But, but aside from that, there's two immediate issues that came to my surface. First of all, when it speaks about change, it's just something that happens. Change doesn't just happen. Slavery didn't just go away. Women didn't just happen to all of a sudden gain the right to vote. That's not how progress has ever worked. That's not how progress works. Change is chosen. Change is sweated after. You have to bleed. You have to lay your life on the line. You have to go into an inconvenient place and costly love another more than oneself to actually see change implemented in society. So no, change does not just happen. But then my second beef was it when we think about Jesus as the sole one who's responsible for doing the saving. Jesus saves. On one level, that's obviously true. That's why we gather in gratitude. That's why this is a festive spirit, why we come together to remember the good news that that we are loved despite ourselves, that we are covered, that we are safe, that we are seen. On one level, that's, that's, that's true. On another level, it's very problematic, though. If Jesus is the only person who is to save. Because when you think about all the stats that I just read you, When you think about that six-year-old child, Stephen Romero, if Jesus is the only person to save, then our hands are clean and his hands are dirty. Jesus didn't save that child. We weren't supposed to save that child because Jesus is the one who saves. We don't save. By implication, we are not to intervene. We are not to be this agent of change and reconciliation, redemptive. We're not to step into dark places and bring the light because Jesus does that so we don't have to. That is a dangerous place to go. There is nothing that will guarantee the status quo being preserved and taken care of than this outsourcing of our responsibility to Jesus. When Jesus constantly doesn't tell us to believe in him, but says to follow him, to walk like he walked, to do what he did, to sum up all 613 laws into love God and love neighbor. So how do we do that? What does it look like to actually live into this? Um, I want to look at 1 Samuel. Not 17, not 16, but 1 Samuel 8. Because in this moment, you have a group of people who are trying to discern the best way forward as a people. How how do we actually go about our lives? How do we live this thing correctly? How do we have the best life 
possible. Context-wise, prior to King David and prior to King Saul, there was no monarchy that had been established. Israel was a loose federation of tribes that was held together by no constitutive value, but just the memory that they once were slaves that had been set free, that God has their back, and they are to be a blessing to all people. That's their charge. There are a lot of different tribes in the world. Your central command, your central task is to not just be a blessed, but to also be a blessing. To not just be loved, but to also to be loving. That was their central work as a, as a, as a loosely banded together federation of tribes. That wasn't good enough though. As Christian was just talking about, to actually love your neighbor is costly and not profitable. And so like most of us, we can only do so for a season before we start backing out of that and backing into something a little bit better. Leaving the costly, looking for the cozy. Israel, they go to their prophet Samuel. After sizing up all the nations around them and they say, listen, we've noticed how the Babylonians are doing business. We notice how the Philistines seem to be successfully fighting. And we want a king just like that. Give us a king. We haven't had a king this far. I understand that God is our king and that he's our sole support, you know, power. And that's great and all, but we'd really like a king. Somebody who can lay down the law. Somebody who can make things happen. We want power. We want control. We want to be able to set this thing down for real and not just in the hypotheticals. Please give us a king. Now Samuel was the one who spoke on behalf of God and Samuel was the one who spoke to God. And so Samuel takes these pleas of the people to God. And Samuel says, believe it or not, uh, the people are voting you out. And they want a king instead. Samuel's expecting God to, you know, be livid. That's not going to happen. Not on my watch. Instead, however... Yahweh speaks to the prophet and says, go ahead. If that's what they collectively want, then give it to them. It's not their best, but it's what they want, then green light it. And Samuel, when you do, please don't be too hard on yourself because this is not about you, this is about me. If that's what the people want, then give it to them. But when you do, when you give them what they want, when you recognize that they're not saying no to you, that they are saying no to me, give them a king, but tell them what it will cost. Read to them the fine print involved in such a choice. And so Samuel does that. Samuel tells them what it's like. Samuel says, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. And he goes on to talk about all the things that we are afraid people in power who go crooked might do. Samuel says, kings aren't all that they're cracked up to be. Lovely bark, no bite. Kings will sense your boys into battles while their leadership is far away in boardrooms. Kings will demand taxation without representation. They will take your daughters. Kings are crooked, kings are corrupt, kings aren't up to any good. And the people hear it all out. They stand next to Samuel and they read the fine print. And they say, noted, 
we'll still take the king. That's what we want anyways. How does this connect to our conversation that we're having right now? This was the text that I woke up with this morning because there is something surprising in this text that we often fail to recognize. God, give us a king. Expectation, I'm your king. Back away. That's not going to happen. Reality, God, give us a king. Okay. If that's what you want, then here it is. God allows us to have what we want, even if it's not what we need. And in doing so, we make the world. God made the world. We've been making the world ever since. God can influence. God does not interfere. God always is inviting us into a true path of peace, righteousness, love of neighbor over self. But God does not demand it on you, will not inflict it upon you. God will let you know the cost of this choice of going in this direction. But God will not keep you from choosing it. Recognize that we have the agency to make the world how we desire it to be made. It is not Jesus' sole role and responsibility to spare the lives in the land. We are all called to be responsible for our neighbor. We are not here to be spectators. We're here to be game changers. And when there is a crisis in the land and we sit idly by singing, he has the whole world in his hands while he is saying, do something with the world I put into your hands. That's a problem. And so what will we do? Because we could go this first direction. We could hear how our neighbors are accumulating power and forfeit our one source of power to match what they have. We want a king just like they have. We could go this direction and, and try to have these things, deny the realities of the problems of the land, even though they're being read out right before us. Or we could go back home, the original way. It's amazing to me that in recent conversations I had with somebody, we were looking at, well, we're talking actually about money in politics, which I'll spare. We've, we're dealing with enough right now, okay? But I was talking with a fellow Christian about this, and immediately within the first paragraph of the conversation, it shifted to them saying to me, it's all complicated, it's messy, it's loud. God will take care of it, though. God is in control. We don't have to worry about it. In other words, like we are not charged to be a constructive spirit in today's society, nor are we responsible for our own complicity. But correct me if I'm wrong, but the first word that we hear out of the church in Acts is Peter standing up at Pentecost and he says that God sent Jesus of Nazareth and you killed him. That's why we are where we are today. There was a man who walked among you, but inside, inside of this love-limiting and God-crucifying world that we have created, you could not stand his presence for more than 32 years. You are complicit in that. You have a say in how society is being shaped. And so how will we use our voice, our vision, our ways? Will we collide with God's or will we collude with God's? Which will it be? What is the best way forward? There's no, there's no silver bullet. If there was, we wouldn't have all these deaths. We wouldn't have all these problems. But you'll recognize this. 
that despite God outlining for the people that the monarchy is crap, that it's going to make a mess, that you're going to do more harm than healing, that it's not good, you'll recognize that when the people go back to God and they say, you were right, what should we do now? God says, I will meet you in that monarchy and let's take the next step forward. David was not the perfect man, but he was a good next step. And one of the things you hear in David's life, if, you don't, if none of this is coherent, please hear this. Not once in David's life, in David's story, do we have David hearing from God. He doesn't hear God's voice one time. David is called. David arises. David steps into the scene, not when he hears from a higher power, but when he hears from a problem. When he hears that Saul is disturbed, he is brought in to be a musician. When he hears the giant screaming out in the middle of the field, he says, I will rise and meet that man in the middle. If you are waiting for God's voice to reach you, might it be true that God is speaking through today's problems to get to you? Inviting you to meet you into the middle of the battlefield just like God once did with King David. How will we make the world that we are in? Let me close with this. James Baldwin, I was reading him this weekend, and he has this quote. A country is only as good, only as strong as the people who make it up, and the country turns into what the people want it to become. I don't believe any longer that we can afford to say that it is entirely out of our hands. It's just the way it is. We made the world we're living in, and we have to make it over. Pray with me. Jesus, give us the courage, the conviction, the character. Give us the vision, Lord, to love our neighbors more than ourselves. To pursue the common good of our country. to be people who are not trying to be palatable but are trying to be prophetic and powerful because that's what you call us to be. It's not enough to be frustrated, God. It's not enough to be fed up. Jesus, expand our imaginations. Equip us to be agents of change. To remember our true calling is to build a beautiful world and to look to Jesus to see how... It, it is that we go about doing that. Christ, you are good. Christ, we are grateful. And all God's children, we stay together. Amen. Amen. Matt talked about how the church is the thermostat and we set the tone. And as the church, we follow Jesus and Jesus sets the bar. And the bar he sets is for us to be people who live right with God and one another that we're to be people who are salt and light, that we are to be people that are peacemakers. That's who we are. That's what it means to be a change agent. And so when we gather together on Sunday nights and we're reminded that being at church is far more than feeling good when we walk out or or being reminded even of God's love, but it's, it's being reminded that we have a God that loves us so much that he set himself aside to make things right and he calls us to do the same thing. And so I'm grateful, Matt, for your message tonight. So when we gather 
and we take communion together, we have a chance to pause and God meets us right where we're at and he continues to change us and move us to be the people that he created us to be. So during the music, we invite you forward and you can take the bread and dip it into the cup. On your left will be gluten-free elements and on your right, gluten-full elements. On the night before Jesus died, this Jesus who set self aside, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me, the new covenant. And so that's what we do. We take the bread, we take from the cup, and we remember a reckless love that calls us into reckless loving of one another. Please stand together and we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day. As it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is kingdom, the power, glory forever.